What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So today we're here to talk about Where'd You Go, Bernadette, the new film starring Kate Blanchett and a bunch of other Queen. people. I've written their names in here if we want to get to it. Um, intro question. If you ran away from home, where would you go and why? Don't You can't take Antarctica because Bernadette already did that. It seems like the most difficult way to run away. I don't know. We'll get there, I guess. If you had asked me at any other point in my life, I would have said Oregon. This is Mary, by the way. Yeah, this is Mary. Just because I think, like, the Oregon coast is really pretty and, like, that rainy Pacific Northwest vibe I'm really into. But maybe I would run away to that bear sanctuary you went to, Emily. (laughs) Yeah, you should run away to the bear sanctuary. It's real cool. Or run away to the cat sanctuary in Hawaii and just live with the cats. Yeah, that's kind of, that's the dream. Is that your answer? Yeah. Okay, who wants to go next? I feel like I go last because I'm the host. Go. Oh, I can go. Uh, I'm Susan. And, Hi, Susan. Um, I would definitely go to London. Yeah. Every time I'm in London, I think, <laughs> I could live here. And I don't ever want to leave at the end of the trip. So I would probably pull some bullshit, like, go I'm on gone. a trip and just be like, eh, I'll stay. You would gone girl mm-hmm. in London. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. But without framing Justin for your fake murder, I'm assuming. Yes. Right. Well, cut that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'd take him with uh, None of us should actually answer this question just in case we ever do decide to run away. Then people will know where well, to find us. Well, we also us. talked about how we would fake our deaths on another episode. So all of our secrets are... That's true. Or out. Yeah. If any of us go missing, there's plenty of audio evidence, evidence of where you might find Well, one time as a child, I planned to run away from home with a friend of mine um, because we wanted to run away because we were inspired by one of the Mary-Kate and Ashley movies. I don't remember what it was called, but it was kind of a, a Western vibe and they had horses. Yes. So our plan... Oh my god, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking um, about. I don't remember what it's called. It's like the Lonely Eye Ranch. Something like that. So our plan was to get up very early and sneak out 
and then walk to one of the roads that we had once seen horses on and then get on those horses that we find and ride them somewhere. This was the a road you had once seen that's horses not, on. This you was the full to, plan. You have to get consent from the horses. Like, you can't just ride a horse without consent. <laughs> I mean, how do horses give consent? They have ways of communicating. I'm going to find... I would argue that no horse has ever given consent to be ridden. <laughs> that's oh. true. I don't know, though. Oh, the logical eye ranch. There you go. That's what um, <laughs> so you, that's where you would go. Yes. To that fictional ranch in a Mary Kate and Ashley movie. movie. <laughs> hey. Okay. I like it. That was, that was Kelly, by the I way. I said that, I think. Um, oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you didn't know, now you know. We'll see. I can't imagine <laughs> you didn't know. Um, this is Emily. Um, so... This is this is an easy answer for me. I mean, obviously, because uh, I came up with a question, but also, um, I would I would run away to Japan. I knew you were gonna I, say that. Yeah, I I studied Japanese, and I haven't been like I went to Japan before I studied Japanese, and so to me, it's like a crime that like I went to Japan, and then came home, studied Japanese, and have not been back since then. Um, and I feel like, obviously, like, a lot of the language has, like, left me. But I feel like it would come back really fast if I was immersed. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to piggyback a little bit off of what Mary said and say, like, my dream is to just, like, drop everything, all responsibilities, and just, like, go work for, like, a cat cafe or something like that. Um, and, you know, like, Japan is, like... Cat Island. Cat Cafe Central. That's where it all, you know, all goes down. You know, so... That is what I would do. I would, if if I go missing, book a flight to Tokyo, go to all the cat cafes, and you will find me there. Probably. Unless you faked your own death and convinced us not to come looking for you. Yes. But if I died the way I said I was going to die, then I don't even remember how I said I was going to die. I think I said I would just kill myself for real. <laughs> I think you did say that. Yeah. Why even bother <laughs> with the like, faking? That's not how this game was supposed to be. <laughs> Man, and you know what? Like, I really hate that when you ask a question and someone, like, doesn't play by the rules of the question. So I apologize for that. Like what I just did? Uh, no, that was fine. Okay. It's okay for it to be a fake place. Thanks, Emily. I've been waiting for that apology for, like, three months. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look, I came to it, finally. Uh, anyway, the reason we're talking about running away from home is we're talking about Where'd You Go, Bernadette, today. Um, here's the quick summary of the film. Former architect Bernadette Fox seems to have it all. A beautiful home in Seattle, a successful and loving husband, and a brilliant teenage daughter who's about to attend boarding school. When Bernadette suddenly disappears without a trace, her concerned family sets off on an exciting adventure to solve the mystery of where she might have gone. Um... Note, there will be spoilers for both the book and the movie to follow. This discussion is going to be primarily about the movie. However, there are some major changes to the film version of this that I feel like need to be discussed in order to like get an understanding of like what the movie is doing. Um, yeah. So we will be talking about some aspects of the book as well. Um, not all of us have read the book. That is okay. Um... Who has? That was my question. I think just me and Kelly, right? Yeah. 
I haven't. Okay. I just don't want to be the only one. No, no. You're good. (laughs) Mary's got your back. And you know what? You didn't miss much. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yes. So, this is an adaptation of a very popular book, as I just said. The book is epistolary, so that means it's mostly told through written communication, in this case, mostly through emails. Um, How did we feel about how that was adapted for film? And for the two of you who did not read the book, did the fact that this was adapted from an epistolary form ever seem obvious just in what, how the story was being told. I mean, now that you say that I could see it, I'm guessing like the emails are to Marjula. Uh, The emails are to a bunch of different people. So she emails Manjula like, so the emails that she's sending to Manjula that she's like speaking aloud in the, in the movie are basically like word for word, the same as they were in the book. But she also, Parts of it are are narrated by B, the daughter. Um, right. And those are the only parts that aren't exactly email communication. And then the rest of it is, like, there are a lot of emails between Su Lin and Audrey. Mm-hmm. Um, there are emails from Elgin to the uh, psychotherapist. There are emails also from Bernadette to, like the architect guy that she meets up with, that whole thing is actually just an email. Um, the video... Lawrence Fishburne is an email? Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Lawrence Fishburne is an email. Um, (laughs) that is the title of the episode. Uh, (laughs) 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 we, we are, you know, ten minutes in, (laughs) we got it. Uh, man, that feels good. We don't have to worry about that (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. As I was saying, <laughs> the video that she watches about her architecture career is, like, actually sort of an essay type of thing written about it. So, yeah, pretty much everything other than some moments of narration from B are emails slash notes. And I even the narration from B, we get the sense that B has, well, we know that B has, like, gotten all of this correspondence together and is compiling it into like some sort of like written account of some sort. Yeah. Like what happened to my mom? (laughs) Yeah. Even the parts that she's narrating or like you get the sense that she's like writing it down for someone. Yeah. But here's my main problem with, and this is just speaking, I guess like you guys haven't read it, but I'm just going to quickly say that I don't like it when a book is written in emails or even in letters or whatever. And there's like dialogue, like nobody writes like that to another person. (laughs) You don't write full scenes of dialogue between people and like send it as an email. That is not a thing that happens in real life. So (laughs) that I I don't write, I keep a journal and like, I don't write down full scenes of dialogue, but I do write down things that were said. Yeah. Or, or you'll say, you know, this person told me that blah, 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 or whatever, but you won't be like, like, here's the thing. I think you're going to be hard pressed to find many epistolary novels that don't include scenes of dialogue like that. Um, and that's why epistolary novels are stupid. Right. And so I was going to say like, I think it's more than an issue of like, you're just, you're not able to suspend disbelief for that style of writing essentially yeah it doesn't it does not work for me also i could feel 
it felt very stilted to me that Bernadette was speaking this email out to her phone because the sentences were so well constructed and not using words that normal people use. So when she was, you know, uh, narrating this email to Manjula, I was like, who would ever talk like that? Like, to write an email on there. It just seemed like completely unrealistic to me. Yeah. I mean, I will say in the movie, I thought it was funny because uh, Bernadette's using text to speech. And it's so funny because she has to do the thing you you do when you're doing text to speech. Like, will you order a sign question mark? Yeah. yeah. It was funny when she I... put in the punctuation. Mm-hmm. It's funny. But at the same time, she wasn't putting in enough punctuation. Yeah. She wasn't but putting in the periods. She really wasn't. That's neither here nor there. It was just funny to yeah. me. It makes me think of this, like, really iconic scene on The Real Housewives of New York. Where one of them's, like, yelling into a phone. And she has to yell the punctuation. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what a modern tale. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I want to read an epistolary novel as if I'm reading someone's voice to text, <laughs> where all the punctuation is spelled out. Oh yikes! That seems like that would be very hard to get through. Like it would be hard. To, it would be hard to ha- get a flow going. I think you'd get oh, yeah. used to it. Of it would. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't really want to read that. I don't even want to read a regular epistolary novel, to be honest. Emily took you um, really so seriously. Kind of What's that? Read it. Emily took you really seriously. Yeah. Susan was like, I want to... And Emily's like, I don't think that would be very good. (laughs) I'm just saying. No shit. You know. (laughs) Look, you know, I was trying to go along with the idea conceptually. Like, I was sitting here, like, thinking, like, okay, how would that work? Um, It would have to be... You'd have the word semicolon in the middle of your sentence. (laughs) Like, it would have to be an audiobook to really, like, get the full experience. It would still be annoying. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. As it sounds like this book might have been annoying in its own way. It was. I can't right now think of an epistolary novel that I have really enjoyed. So I'm going to say I'm glad I didn't read it. I will say this. Um, So I read most of this book, but then I listened to the end of it. um, And... The audiobook is super fucking annoying. I was enjoying it a lot more when I was reading it. <laughs> oh no! Um, and I know that Kelly listened to the audiobook, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that she would have loved it if she hadn't listened to the audiobook. But I also think that definitely, probably did not help. Yeah, I mean the audio the audiobook made it annoying. But my problems with the book are are beyond the annoyingness because I can deal with that. You know. Yeah. Like, like, if it was just annoying and I, I felt that, like, the that. plot mattered at all, then I would have, like, you know, mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't like this. I'm sorry, I'm just saying that now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it as a book. I just don't like it. I don't this. like it as a movie. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, which saddens me because <laughs> yeah, I do totally. love Kate Blanchett, but. I do not like them here. I do not like them there. Yeah. Um, we, we'll definitely get into more of that, and I have some critiques that I put in here. Yes, um, sorry, I just had to. No, no, but we'll, like, if you feel like you've been carrying... I, I couldn't not <laughs> say it any longer. Um, okay, so let's talk about Bernadette as a character, because 
Um, really, like, this is, it's, this is really more about Bernadette as a character than it is, like, a story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for better or for worse. So with that in (laughs) mind, like, what is Bernadette's deal? Um, (laughs) I don't think we need to, like, diagnose her, but, like, we certainly can if we want to, because, like, fuck it. Um, did you... Did you identify with her or feel sympathy for her at all? Or did you think she was just straight up unlikable? Like, what were your guys' thoughts on her as a character? Because she's definitely, like, I feel like you have to have opinions about her. Yeah. I did not find her unlikable. I found her fairly relatable. I, uh, I understood from the place of being, you know, an artist that, uh... (laughs) It's important to be creative and that if you are, if your creativity is stifled, that can make you miserable in a lot of ways. I, I was frustrated with the way that she seemed to, um, reject the idea that she could, like, deal with her mental illness in any kind of professional sense. She was yeah. very mm-hmm. um, not open to the idea of, you know, talking to a therapist. And there's a moment when she says, you know, when he, when Elgin says, uh, I think you could really use someone to talk to. And she's like, well, I'm talking to you, aren't I? And I was just like, oh, the, num- the number of times specifically, like, my dad has said that to me when I tell him that he should <laughs> talk to a therapist, like, TMI. But yeah, it's like, well, maybe the people in your life don't deserve that burden. Yeah. <laughs> you <know>? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And also can't help yeah. you the way it is. Right. It's different. Thing. It's um, like, it's one thing to like have friends and family members who you talk to and who help you, but you also need to be taking a little bit of responsibility and, and making a little bit of effort on your own to be dealing with this kind of thing. And like, it's, which is not to say at all that like mental illness is someone's fault or that they're responsible for, you know, it's their, you know, whatever. Like, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say, like, you know, if you, if she's clearly not happy, she knows she's not happy, but she won't do anything to change that. Yeah. I don't think her mental illness is her fault, but I do think that her isolation is kind of a thing of her own making. Yeah. Yeah. Like, some of that is she did that (laughs) like chose to live in a certain way that made it impossible to then do the creative. And she seems to take pride in her rejection of all other people, which is like, I also get because of course, you know, I don't, I'm not crazy about people, but yeah, but you're nicer to people than she is. Like she's just straight up like rude to people. Yeah. Yeah. And while no one wants to hang out with like those private school moms that she (laughs) was, calling gnats like they do seem awful but i mean there are better ways yeah. to <laughs> mm-hmm. handle that Deal with other human beings <laughs> um my main issue was like she's complaining about how terrible seattle is and i'm like girl have you been to hattiesburg <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you don't feel bad for her <laughs> like yes. she doesn't even know i'm like you live in seattle do you know what i would give to live in a place like seattle 
Like, yeah, it's not like top choice for me, but I would be happy. Yeah. But you know what? I think, and I've said this a lot about people who complain about where they live. Um, most of the time when people complain about where they live, it has very little to do with the place and more to do about like them not feeling comfortable with where they are in their life. Yeah. So, I mean, I think obviously mm-hmm. that's the case here. Yeah. And I would also like to note as far as Bernadette's likability, and this wasn't something that we saw in the movie, but there is a part in the book where you get, you see towards the beginning when you know that she's hiring Manjula to do things, you see an invoice that is sent to Manjula and she is paying her 30 cents yeah. an hour yeah. to be her assistant. Um, because she's in India, so right. That's not much. She can so pay we, her. Should we jump to that? I mean, question about Sue Lin and Manjula. The racism is. <laughs> well, I, I want to say uh, about Bernadette. Like, at least in the movie, the whole first part of the movie, I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> what's her problem? Why does she hate everyone?" And I don't know, I'm interested to hear if it's like this in the book, and I don't even know if it matters, you know, like, I don't even know how productive it is to compare the book and the movie on everything, but, like, the movie does this thing where about halfway through the movie, or a little more than halfway through the movie, it is revealed that uh, Bernadette had her career ruined by this... I don't know, game show host who like tore, bought and tore down her architectural masterpiece. She didn't have anywhere to live afterwards. She had to find a new place to live, a new project and everything. And she kind of just like left LA, which was where she was beginning her career as an architect and moved to Seattle with her husband. So he could sort of pursue his career in tech. And once you hear that, it all makes sense. You know, like, it makes sense why she hates Seattle. And it's not really Seattle. It's, like, why she's there. Like you said, Emily, it's, like, what's going on in her life? Why she's there? What she's had to sacrifice to be there? And then disappointment in herself because she just kind of stopped being an architect after this. And... I don't hearing uh you know the scene where she's talking to Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> was so powerful in the movie and I'm now just imagining that as yeah. an email exchange. <laughs> but like it's so powerful because she talks about how she had a bunch of miscarriages and she wanted so badly to have a child and then she did and then she poured everything into having a child and like now she's reaching that age where her child's going to leave. Mm-hmm quite literally and go to boarding school and it's just gonna be her again and what's she gonna do and i mean like once you hear all that it makes perfect sense and it makes sense why she's isolated herself and why she's mean to people or you know acts the way she does but the whole time before you get that it's like what is the deal yeah like it's funny she's funny and it's entertaining to watch but like if you knew someone like that in real life you'd hate them yeah yeah i do know people like that in real life and I do hate them. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's an interesting turn that the movie makes yeah. that I actually really enjoy yeah. because it's just like a nice twist of your perceptions and how you think you know a character and then you don't. 
Also, I think LG is like the villain what? of this movie. Yeah, and I do want to. Nope, we're going to talk about that. I do want to talk about that because I definitely <laughs> this feel is like, like Billy Crudup. <laughs> we're going to talk about that because I do feel like they made some changes in the movie to make that less the case than it is yeah. in the book. Um. So, like, this is one instance where I think we definitely do need to talk about the changes in the book because they are pretty significant. This seems the biggest. Um, but because we did mention Manjula, I do want to talk a little bit about Sulin and Manjula just, like, as characters and how they're depicted in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, and I know that Manjula ends up not being a real person, but... So we've got two depictions of Asian women here um, and are these depictions a little, like, racist? I mean... I don't know. I mean, we don't see Manjula at all in the movie. We don't see an email back from her. Yeah. Anything. And we do we do get emails from her in the book, which I think helps add to this, like, once you find out that Manjula isn't, like, a real person, it adds to that level of, like, deception where you're, like, you also feel like you were deceived. Yeah, but also the emails from Angela are, it's it's kind of funny almost because Bernadette will send this long-ass rambling email for no, like, no reason, and then she gets an email back from Angela that's like, I ordered the vests. Thank you, yeah. Manjula. <laughs> it's like, she does not respond to any of the personal stuff at all. Yeah. And then Bernadette sends back, like, Manjula, I yeah. love the vest, this detail. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the the portrayal of the supposed Manjula is necessarily racist, because there are many women working in these kind of, you know, call center slash assistant center slash all kinds of... Because it's what's yeah, available. Uh, working in India, doing this stuff for super cheap labor being, you know sent to the u.s and uh so it's not the depiction of her it's the way that that bernadette treats yes the situation and so it's more like it i think bernadette is racist yeah (laughs) um no i agree i agree i think and i'm not sure if that was the intended she's elitist yes but part of that is like she's a white Woman. Right, but yeah. I think so that part of that elitism would, comes from her position of power as a white person. I think person. that would extend yeah. to like any race, also. But so yeah. yes, it's it's her, not so much. I don't. I mean, it, at least in the movie, like it never would have occurred yes. to me to even ask. Is is well, she does make that comment in the movie, like "You bet your bendy it does" or something <laughs> like that, which was like a little yeah. like. I mean, it's like. Not great. I think it was a joke that just fell real yeah. flat. Well, and it's also direct dialogue from yeah. the book. Because I remember hearing that in the book and being like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. what? And just, and I'm not sure that, that Maria Semple intended to create her character as slightly racist. So it is realistic that a rich white lady would be mm-hmm. slightly racist. So, yeah. um, I think yeah, I don't know. more complicated. Well, she doesn't have a lot to do in the movie. She doesn't do much. Well, in they the had movie. to cut out most also, of her like, storyline so that LG isn't a bad guy. But yeah. <laughs> she she like fits right in with the other moms at the private school, and I don't think that like the depictions of her are stereotypical necessarily. Like, yeah, I can't remember anything that was said to her that was. I don't know, and I guess this is coming again from the book more, but in the book. 
she just comes off to me as like that very like typical like submissive Asian woman. She's submissive to LG. She's submissive to um, Audrey mm. in that friendship, and it like it seems like. And I mean, eventually she does end up asserting herself with Audrey because Audrey definitely like, um, and this is all in the book too. Like this doesn't happen in the movie, but like Audrey very much like, like expects a lot from Sulin in that friendship. And Sulin finally has to be like, no, like mm-hmm. this is not like, I have to like cut you off, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. I guess that's me. Um, projecting things from the book. Yeah, I guess I might have more so. of an answer if I had, you know, any of that context. In the movie, to me, I mean, her her being submissive appears to be only, like, going as far as her role as a subordinate person in the company, too. And LG. she idolizes him. Yeah, and not, like... Yes. I mean, yeah. I think that's why she defers to him, but... Um, mm-hmm. So I would say, like, in the movie, I don't think so, but... Yeah. Yeah. I think they definitely cut out a lot of the stuff with Sulin because it was some of the more, like, problematic stuff in the book, which it was probably... It was wise for them to cut out some of it, but cut out some of it, but then other parts, it's like, this affects the way that we see LG as a character. Yeah. So let's just get into that. So... While I don't think we should discredit a movie based on how much it strays from the source material, my example here is Annihilation is very different as a movie than it is as a book, and I think that's great, you know? Um, However, this movie changes a lot of major plot points, and some are questionable to me. Um, I'm going to link to a Vulture article that kind of, like, breaks down the big changes and how it sort of, like, changes the way that we view the story, but... I think most notably Sue Lin, and I want to just like read this part in the article. Maybe somebody else can read it because I've been talking a lot, but I think like they do a good succinct job of like explaining the difference. Also, I do want to just quickly say that because I was listening to this as an audiobook, I thought the name Sue Lin was like S U E L Y N N E because I was just assuming that these were all rich white ladies because that's on me. <laughs> um, and they also did not mention anything about her race until, like, towards the end of the book. And you just – you would know that she was Asian because of her name if you were reading it. But I was listening to it. So I had no idea. And then as soon as they mentioned something about her being Asian, like, in probably, like, the last third of the book, I was like, whoa, that changes everything. <laughs> I was like, weird. Um, Okay. I'm going to read it now. And this is all going to be new to me because... Go for it. Did it? (laughs) Read the book. Okay. Yeah. In the book, Sulin starts off as a type of mole. She works at Microsoft with Elgin and gossips about what she learns about Bernadette over email with Audrey. But Sulin gets progressively closer to Elgin, especially after Bernadette disappears and B heads off to... Chote? (laughs) What a stupid name for a school... She writes to Audrey often about her growing feelings for Elgin and the kind of fairy tale into which she thinks she stepped. After a drunken hookup with Elgin, she discovers she's pregnant, which we learn not long after Bernadette is revealed to have gone to Antarctica. But Sulin plays a large part in the initial international search party for Bernadette, understanding that Elgin still loves his wife. What? In the movie, 
Sulin's significance is progressively minimized throughout the script. There is no threat of a romantic relationship between Sulin and Elgin, especially as the third act hunt for Bernadette is framed like a more wholesome father-daughter bonding experience. About halfway through the movie, I leaned over to Emily and I was like, are they going to have an affair? And did Emily say yes? And Emily was like, well, and Emily I mean, it definitely like, seems yeah. like but then they <laughs> then they that's don't. where it was supposed to go. It seemed like it was left out to create, and this is my Mm -hmm. major issue with it, like getting back to Elgin as a villain or not, I feel like it was left out so that we could have this, like, again, like, wholesome ending where, like, the family is reunited and everything's fine. Is Sulin, um, you know? Is she single um, in the book? Or? Yeah. 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 She's divorced. That makes it better. Right. She has a she has a kid. Just the yeah. less people that you're destroying, I guess, if one of you is single. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me feel so much differently yeah. about Elgin. Because even in the movie, just if we're just, like, going on what's in the movie, yeah. I just feel... I understand that he wants her to go to therapy. Uh-huh. And I agree that that's a good call. Like, I'm pro-therapy. However... The way he just, and maybe there's more that we didn't see, Mm -hmm. but he just, like, tells her once, hey, don't you think you should talk to someone at dinner? And she's like, no, 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 everything's Uh fine. And then we go from that to intervention and, like, wanting to commit her. (laughs) He totally oversteps, for sure. Yeah. Also... In the in the book, Su Lin has this whole thing, and this I'm actually being reminded of this now. Like, so she was in an abusive relationship, and she's like part of a support group, and she like has decided mm-hmm. that Elgin is also in a, an abusive relationship, and it's her her job to like sort of like intervene Save and him. show him this. So, like he she's trying to like point out how like Bernadette is the bad guy in this relationship. And, like, taking from Elgin. And Elgin is, like, this saint who never does anything wrong and is just being taken advantage of in Sue Lin's eyes. Huh. So that's a whole thing we don't get. <laughs> I kind of wish these things weren't in the movie. I feel like it um, would have been yeah. a lot more interesting. Because one of my gripes about the movie was just, like, it just kept happening. But, like, not, you yeah. know, like, I wasn't, like, that compelled by it, really, at, yeah. at any point. It is not compelling It's on at a trajectory yeah. that you and expect. It goes exactly the and, way like, you think it's going to go. It, but this. I wasn't, like, being propelled forward, no. I guess. But I feel like that stuff would have made it more interesting and more complicated, yeah. which is more fun to watch and makes you, you know. But it's also, like, more. In- these people. By the end, I didn't care about. Like them. my feeling was just still. that, like more, uh, like when I think about the book, I'm like, more was happening, but like to what end? Like I don't think it really, even though there was more plot, like I don't think it made me take uh-huh. away any more from the experience of reading it. Like the way that I feel about the book and the movie is that it they ended, and I was like, what, like yeah. What was the point of that? And, like, I I don't feel that way very often. Like, it takes a lot for me to not find a purpose in so whatever piece of art or whatever that I'm critiquing. So I actually have a quote from the other 
another Vulture article yeah. that kind of, like, speaks to that. And so, like, maybe we can read this and you can say okay. whether you agree or disagree. Because, like, their argument is, like... I can read it. I mean, basically... Okay. Yeah. Um. So, the, who wrote this article? Is this the... Um, let me see. That last one was by Nick Allen. And then this other Vulture article is... By... By... David Edelstein. I want you to know that the title of this article is Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Nowhere, damn it. So. <laughs> um, but but this, this paragraph Literally. is more about, like, sort of, like, comparing the book and the meaning of the book versus the meaning of the movie. So. Yeah. So, and this is, okay. Stop. Let me acknowledge that few things are more annoying than people, especially critics, who spend a lot of time complaining about the ways in which a movie is different from a book. What we've yes. been doing this whole time. Um, here's why we're worth listening to. Sometimes you go to a film and you have no idea what you're watching. You can't even tell why it was made. It wasn't until I read Semple's book after I saw the film that the story began to make a larger sense, as B very slowly homed in on the mother she adored but barely knew the essence of. A brilliant groper, Bernadette spends the first part of her life trying to rethink architecturally the idea of home, and she was fumbling her way toward greatness when a billionaire British game show magnate effectively slapped her down, leaving her traumatized, dysfunctional, homeless. Her husband, Elgin, made millions after a corporate buyout and now spends his days perfecting a super-secret virtual assistant project for Microsoft, but wealth has only intensified Bernadette's isolation. The fixation on virtual assistants is a metaphor. For two decades, she has been slouching toward Antarctica to be reborn. So that's kind of essentially what he's saying he's getting from the book that he didn't get from the movie. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Like, sure, but... Also, still, why? You know, like, I just felt, I felt like there, and and this is especially true in the movie, but the stakes are so low. Like, yeah. like what is it that that is being threatened here? Like, Bernadette's artistic ambition? Like, is that it? And I, I think in the book, like, it is, she actually does go missing. Like, they literally don't know where she is. Um... For a long period of time. Like, she... Well, not a long period of time, but, like, she go A, a period, period of time. time. Like, B goes back to school. Everyone thinks Bernadette is dead. Like, she's actually missing. And in the movie, you know the entire time that she's fine. Like, there were... Mm-hmm. There was part of the book where I thought maybe she was dead. Like, maybe. I thought probably not, but it's possible. This book I mean, could be darker than I expected. the very beginning of the movie where she's gonna go because, like... <laughs> We see her in Antarctica, like, yeah, penguins at the very beginning. So the small amount of this movie that that would have any mystery is taken away before we even, like, they, they like, open the bathroom door and she's gone and they're like, oh my god, where'd she go? And then it's, like, cut to Bernadette. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and also it's like, we already knew that she's in it. She, we know she's in Antarctica. Yeah. Um, one of the yeah, things, like, I noted too door. is, like, and I felt this way when I read the book, <laughs> it's called Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But, like, in the book, it's, like, she doesn't even go anywhere until, like, the last 50 pages or so. Like, it's yeah. very late in the yeah. book. And in the movie, it seems like it happens a little bit earlier. Maybe not. But, like, she's not gone it's for that long. It's still pretty late in the like, movie. Like, I don't know. Well, maybe it's, like, where'd you go? Well, like, in your head. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> where is this person, Bernadette, that we knew before? Yeah. I um, guess so. True. <laughs> Um, you just dropped a truth bomb. We don't know what to say. Yeah, it was too much. I gotta go now. 
Susan Dett. Oh, Elgin. Um, so yeah. when you said he was the villain, Mary, of the movie, I said I disagree because I think without all of that stuff happening, he's not that bad. Minus the yeah, the intervention is not great. But I kind of blame the doctor for that. I'm like, you're a mental health professional who thought like this was like an okay approach on like day one of you haven't actually met her or assessed her yourself. That's your fault, not Elton's. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't think he's all that all that bad. Well, yeah. And he he's framed as like a, a loving and concerned husband and father. In the book, it's certainly more like he is has like a fundamental misunderstanding of what is going on with Bernadette. Yeah. Well, I actually thought at the the end of the movie, you know, when he's talking to B and he says like, how did I let this happen to her? I was Mm -hmm. kind of like, I mean, you didn't like, not really. I mean, you might have like not taken the right type of like care of her artistry that she would want from her partner but like a lot it's of not this your is responsibility like doing so yeah i don't think that you can sit there and say like i have done this whole thing because that's not true <laughs> like, well yeah no artist wants to be having their partner be like when are you going to make some more art like right, no yeah, one wants that so like it's nice that he kind of comes to this because he's i mean I, I guess you would think of a tech professional as kind of the more like grounded type personality out of like that and the artist. And so he like comes to this understanding of like what her personality is like, but like, I don't know that like she's ever really like shown a lot of support to him either. I don't know. It didn't feel like they didn't really even seem like that much of a couple to me at all. Even at the end, like when they come together, I was like, this feels like (laughs) not that lovable. I don't know. No. I guess, I mean, it's, the, the insinuation was, I think, especially, you know, like at the end of the movie when he tells B, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit working for Microsoft and I'm gonna spend time with you and be a better dad. Like, I think I got the impression that the insinuation was he spent so much time on work that he wasn't spending time with his family at all, including Bernadette and also B. Um, like, and if you're not spending time with your partner, what kind of marriage do you have? And, like, I don't know. Yeah. I just, I got a bad vibe. I got that affair vibe. But then that's, like, why it made it so much better in the movie for me when they do come together at the end. Because it's kind of like everyone's writing what was wrong in their life. He's going to spend more time with the family. Bernadette's going to be creative again. B decided not to go to boarding school because she wants to be a kid a little bit longer. Like, it all just kind of gets tied up. And most of the time, I'm like, oh, this is sappy. I hate it. But for some reason in this movie, it actually really worked for me. Maybe just the day I went to go see it, I was in a feel-good mood. Well, you know, my dad was there, so, you know. Aww. Yes, Emily's dad saw it with we got snowballs <laughs> afterwards. It was just a very wholesome afternoon. It was very sweet. He treated us to, like, a movie and a snowball day, and it was very yeah. nice. We should have had him come talk about this. 
like I didn't know anything about the novel either going into this and I didn't like read anything besides the basic sort of you know like IMDB type plot summary of it going in but it feels like the film adaptation of a book like it feels like certain things were kind of like pushed along really quickly the way that that often happens when you're smushing a lot more material into a time constraint like I felt like things were sort of missing but I didn't know what they were because I hadn't read it so (laughs) now I know yeah I'm trying desperately to find this article that I saw that I think was on the cut and it just the title was something like why is no one talking about uh, Elgin's insane invention in Where'd You Go, Bernadette? <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to find I'm trying to find I it. I was like, I hope this takes a Black Mirror turn right now. But it did. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was... I was like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. That's, like, the the invention we all want. Like, the most insane thing of, like, being able to just write your thoughts without actually having to type or speak. Okay, but wouldn't you be, if you were him demonstrating that in front of everybody, worried that you would have this other thought that would just pop up on the screen (laughs) in front of everyone? Like, look at this fucking idiot in the front row. Oh, shit. Like, Or just suddenly penis. Penis. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I feel like he probably worked out the kinks, you know? (laughs) Or, like, my butt itches or something, you know? Like. Yeah. Or, like, I have a weird boner for no reason up here on stage. Yeah. Like, just stuff like that. I feel like, how can you stop it from picking up other <laughs> thoughts besides the ones you're trying to email? That would have been exciting. I thought about that for about 15 minutes after <laughs> that one scene. <laughs> so, I might have missed some stuff. because I was It's just wild. Like, That's a terrible idea. Actually. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I really just want to find the title, but... Well, if if we find it, we'll link it in the show notes. Yes. I love that it was called Samantha 2, because it just reminded me of Ashley 2. <laughs> Speaking of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Isn't Samantha the name of the the thing in her? Oh, yeah. That's... Yeah. I was going to say, I was wondering if that was a her reference. Yeah. I think it's got to be. Um, it must be. Or do we want to give rating? Sure. I give it... Uh, a three. I also gave it a three. I feel like Kelly's giving it a one. I'm not giving it a one. Um, I'll give it a two. <laughs> a pity two. <laughs> I gave the book a two also. Yeah, I think I, I think. gave the book a three. My feeling on the book, now, like, I do appreciate a good epistolary novel. You too. To switch things up. Um, so, like, that didn't bother me. But I did feel like once Bernadette was in Alaska, I wasn't, like, really mm-hmm. interested anymore. Antarctica? Yeah. Or Antarctica. What the fuck ever. See, I was you so know, not cold interested. Place. I forgot where she Same was. diff. It's a cold place that starts with A. Um, Y'all know what I meant. I'm gonna cheat a little bit on my rating because I like to give half stars to movies because mm-hmm. it just feels fair, and so Yeah, I know. That's fine. It's a two and a half. Okay. In Rotten Tomatoes terms, it's a 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine. Nice. Cool. If you're, like, so homesick if, one day, I think it's a good thing to watch. Yeah, it's a good, like, feel-good homesick movie. Yeah. Or, like, if you want to go to a movie with your dad and get snowballed oh, yeah. afterwards, it works really well for that. Um, so if you have thoughts, feelings, comments, concerns about 
Where'd you go, Bernadette? The book or the movie? Or if you just want to talk to us about the epistolary mm-hmm. form, hit us up. Mm-hmm. We'll read it on the next other episode. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so next up, before we get into listener feedback and everything, I have an interview I would like to share with you guys. Oh my gosh. This is very exciting. This is awesome. Kate Davies is super awesome. She wrote an awesome book called In at the Deep End. Um, I have a little little uh, summary here for you from Goodreads. I just want to say I read the description of this while we were giving our ratings, and it sounds wild. Mary, this book might be a lot for you. There's a lot of graphic sex in it. <laughs> like, a lot. Um, That's okay. So, I- I'm going to read this and then just give, like, my really quick couple of thoughts about it, because I did read it. Um... And then we'll get to the interview. So, In at the Deep End, a fresh, funny, audacious debut novel about a Bridget Jones like 20 something who discovers that she may have simply been looking for love and ahem, pleasure in all the wrong places, aka from men. Is this book about me? <laughs> Julia, no, because we read this next part. Julia hasn't had sex in three years. Her roommate has a boyfriend, no, and their sex noises are audible through the walls, maybe even throughout the neighborhood. Not to mention, she's treading water in a dead-end job. Her know-it-all therapist gives her advice she doesn't ask for, and the men she is surrounded by are, to be polite, subpar. Enough is enough. So when Julia gets invited to a warehouse party in a part of town where, quote, trendy people who have lots of sex might go on a Friday night, she readily accepts. Whom she meets there, however, is surprising. A conceptual artist, also a woman. That kind of makes it seem like she met a conceptual artist and she also met a woman. Yeah. Just the way that's written. Just one person. <laughs> yeah. This is one, it's a conceptual artist who is also a woman. Uh, but yeah, that was a weird way to phrase that, y'all. Anyway. <laughs> Julia's sexual awakening begins. Her new lesbian life, as she coins it, is exhilarating. She finds her tribe at a queer swing da- at queer swing dancing classes, and guided by her new lover Sam, she soon discovers London's gay bars and BDSM clubs and the complexities of polyamory. Soon it becomes clear that Sam needs to call the shots, and Julia's newfound liberation comes to bear a suspicious resemblance to entrapment. In at the Deep End is an unforgettably frank, funny, and racy odyssey through the pitfalls and seductions we encounter on the treacherous and more often absurd path to love and self. Um, So I did get to read this book, um, and I really enjoyed it. I know that, um, like I said in previous episodes, it has been described as sort of like a lesbian Bridget Jones. And I mean, I haven't read Bridget Jones, but I've seen the movies And I will say, like, I do think while this book does start off very, like, lighthearted and funny, um, it gets a little bit more serious in the second half, which maybe you can kind of tell from the description here. Um, You know, Julia is experiencing a sexual awakening as she, like, discovers um, parts of her sexuality that she didn't realize existed. Um, But she's also realizing that even though she's attracted to women and it feels more comfortable with women that that doesn't mean like all relationships with women are going to be perfect. And she definitely is dealing with a relationship that might be somewhat abusive. So, uh, <laughs> if you are sensitive about graphic sex scenes, this might not be the book for you because, uh, there's a lot of sex and a lot of details. 
I know some people don't like that. I will be reading this. Some people <laughs> are real into that. Um, but I did think, you know, like, th- that this was a, it was a fun book. It was a quick read. And, like, even though it had a little bit of, a, like, a darker turn at the end, like, I don't think that that's a bad thing. Like, I actually enjoyed that because, you know, I think sex and love, those are complex things. Sometimes sex is hilarious. Sometimes it's sad and sometimes (laughs) it's good you know like it's all things and that's kind of like this book is kind of like acknowledging all those facets of sex and relationships so i thought it was really great and um yeah check out this interview it's spoiler free um we talk about aspects of the book and we talk about how interesting kate davies is and she's got some crazy stories to share so let's switch over to that Woo! Okay, so, you know, some of these questions probably heard a lot, but I feel like we got to get them out of the way, kind of acknowledge yeah. them. So, you know, the way this novel is being advertised is as the lesbian Bridget Jones. How do you feel about that comparison? And was that kind of what you were going for when you started writing it? Or Yes, it was, actually. So I feel fine about it. I, When I was a teenager, I loved Bridget Jones. I wanted to be Bridget Jones, even though that's not necessarily a very aspirational thing to be. I just thought, it, I really do. And I, I re- reread the book last year. It's very funny. I think it's a great novel. Um, the, you know, the subsequent ones aren't quite as brilliant, but that first one is a really great book, I think. Um, and it had a really big influence on me and my friends, the way we spoke to each other, the way we texted each other, just it kind of really seeped into our kind of culture. And so, yeah, when I first started writing the book, I wrote, I started writing it as a diary. So it was, it was very influenced by that novel. Um, but then I wanted to move away from it. I, that's a very light novel. Um, and I wanted to write something that was light, but also darker and, and that, that had more, that was more serious about relationships. And I went to see, um, in, I think it's like 2014, um, Lena Dunham came to London and she was in conversation with Catelyn Moran, who's a brilliant writer, really funny feminist writer from Britain. And I know that lots of people, she's a, Lena Dunham is a divisive, divisive figure now, but <laughs> I was a huge fan of girls and I really appreciated what she said about, um, she, she talked a lot about right, the truth in comedy, the importance of um, writing what writing that felt really authentic and true, even if that was uncomfortable. And I found that really inspiring. And so that's what I set out to do, to write things that made me feel uncomfortable by how honest I was being, but that wouldn't let other people see themselves in the book in a way that they maybe hadn't seen themselves represented in other things. So I've kind of moved away from a purely comic, funny, light rom-com into being something a slightly seri- more serious and slightly darker, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that kind of actually my next question was going to be about some of the darker moments in this book. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of answered this already because I was going to ask, like, why was it important for you to take this book into some of those places? Um I, another reason why, I, in 2015, there was a new law passed in the UK that um, criminalised coercive control in relationships. And I I thought that was so interesting because I've played out that dynamic, not necessarily in relationships, in relationships with all sorts of people, also in friendships and that, that kind of controlling dynamic. And you until you have a way to name it, you don't necessarily know that it's a problem. And I 
thought it would be really interesting to explore that dynamic in a same-sex relationship particularly because I think definitely when I came out and I think when lots of people come out they think they're going to have a really equal relationship because they're going out with another woman and like we're going to share each other's clothes and um, it's all going to be super super equal but that isn't of course not always the case because there are different power dynamics between everybody and I just thought that that was an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah um, I've read a lot and I, I feel like some of the things that you've written and here and elsewhere, I've touched on this as well, but, um, you know, I've read a lot of feminist theory and I, a lot of what I read talks about how sex is always sort of like this power struggle, right? Yes. Yeah. And, um, you wrote an article for Marie Claire oh, yeah. about yeah. the orgasm gap. Yeah. Um, I'll link, I'll link to that in the show notes for people who yeah. are interested in reading that. But, um, that was sort of interesting, like when we're talking about power dynamics in relationships, this idea of the way that women in heterosexual sex kind of like um, tend to focus on the male orgasm rather than their own. Um, I don't know. I feel like, can you talk about that a little bit? The, that, that tendency. I think that throughout history, um, penises have been centered in all kinds of ways, um, not least through sex and I and you know lesbian sex was never criminalized in this country I don't think in the states either because I, I just don't think people think it counted because it didn't involve a penis and I think that um, a lot of sex still today revolves around the penis and that the ultimate goal of sex is often that a man achieves orgasm um, and so in in that picture women often don't achieve orgasm and sort of think and have kind of come to accept that that is often the case um, and I think that there's a because because sex and I don't, uh, sorry <laughs> because sex often centers around a penis um, people aren't necessarily um, led to be imaginative enough I suppose in giving women pleasure and uh, they don't realize that for many women um, the way to achieve orgasm or to have that kind of pleasure in in sex is through clitoral stimulation and lots of men aren't even taught how to do that you don't learn that sort of thing in sex education in schools um and I, I just think it's important for us to talk about that sort of thing more for the benefit of men and women um and this is something that can benefit men as well because issues like um you know erectile dysfunction and things like that are seen as such a huge issue because the penis is central to sex whereas actually if you're if you're a bit more imaginative and you use your hands and your tongue as well as your penis um it takes the pressure off the man as well i would say yeah (laughs) um so your advice to heterosexual couples out there is basically stop focusing on the penis so much as the as the central object uh, of sex. Exactly. <laughs> Try out some, you know, sapphic text sex techniques. Try out some fingering. Buy some sex toys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this novel, I know you've talked about it being somewhat autobiographical. You you came out in your 20s? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Um, so how much of this character is you? She, I have to say, I um, she's a bit cooler than I am. She's a bit wryer than I am. She swears more than I do. Um, I'm actually probably more like, 
I'm a combination, I would say, of Julia and Alice. I think lots, there's a lot of me and Alice as well, and a little bit of me and Sam. Um, but a lot of a, a lot of the kind of circumstances of Julia's life are based on my life. So the flat that she lives in is a flat that I used to live in a while ago. Um, and I never worked in the same job that she has in, in the home office in the civil service, but I did work as a civil servant when I was younger. Um, and I used to want to be a ballet dancer, but only till I was about 14, because it became very clear that I was not good enough and <laughs> couldn't do the splits. Um, so there are kind of influences from all those places, but it's not purely autobiographical. Um, and I think that when you write, I, where I write anyway, I, I put a lot of myself into lots of those characters because I want to get into their heads. And that's how I can figure out what they're thinking and what they're what why they do what they do I think um it's interesting you know that you mention the the place where she, the apartment she lives in is very like much your place um I, I find in my own writing that places seem to be the most autobiographical to me because it's sort of like if you know the like area you're playing with you can kind of have fun within it um yeah and I know the location of London is very important to this novel um, I, London's my favorite city in the entire world. Like I love, London. <laughs> if, if, if you have any advice for me on like how I can get there and stay there, please let me know. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I did study abroad in London. I've spent some time there. Um, and I love it. And you, you talk about how, um, London, um, contemporary London is like a great place to be as a queer person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why and why London was an important location for you, aside from just like it being what you know? Yeah, I mean, primarily it's because it's what I know. I grew up here um, and I've, apart from when I went to university, I've always lived here. So it, and I love I love the city. I love how diverse it is and how accepting it is. Um, and I was I love novels like um Heartburn by Nora Ephron, love that novel. But she, the way she kind of writes about New York as though you know where all the streets that she's referring to are. And that's kind of what I wanted to do to make you feel like you were part of this and that you, even if you might not know the names of the streets, it gives you that this sort of insider sense of the city, which I really like. Um, why is it good to be queer in London? Um, because it's so accepting and diverse. There are, you know, there are all kinds of people in this city and um, no matter who you are, how you identify, there will be people here that you that, that um, feel like family to you, that feel like a community. Um, I think that's that's really why. Um, and it, of course, it's not perfect. Just last month, there was a, an attack, a really violent attack on the bus. There were two lesbians on the night bus in London, um, and they were beaten up by a group of guys. So it's you know it's not perfect. Nowhere's perfect, but. Um, we're, I'm really lucky to live in a particularly liberal city at a particularly liberal time when we have, you know, legally we have full equality and that's just, it's just so exciting. And I wanted to celebrate that and how fun it is to be queer in a place with like amazing queer theatre and queer bars and queer, I mean, a queer netball team, you know, all that kind of stuff, anything you want to do, um, there's a group for you to do it in. And I just wanted to kind of celebrate the positive side of being queer in London. Um, I I was really fortunate to be in London a couple of years ago for Pride, which I guess this is like the end of Pride right now. I know this is going to get published later, so maybe people listening to this aren't thinking about Pride, but I guess like right now it seems like an appropriate time to be talking about this book. Did you do anything special for Pride? Actually, London Pride is next weekend. 
we have it slightly, we have it a little bit later. So I don't know. I usually go. Mar- I usually march with an organisation like Amnesty International, um, and I volunteer with a, a charity where you befriend elderly LGBT people, and they're marching. So I march march with them. I really like being part of the parade um, because it just feel it feels kind of slightly more political as well when you're in the parade. And yeah, hopefully go out dancing in the evening somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm jealous. It's it's okay. um so just getting away from the book for a minute i want to talk a little bit about you because you've had some interesting jobs Uh uh-huh so you've worked at buckingham palace oh yeah Uh, you worked as a burlesque dancer which i guess now i'm thinking like maybe that's what you decided to do because you couldn't do splits (laughs) so i don't know (laughs) um and then you've also worked as a children's book editor and writer um do you have any fun stories from any of these jobs you'd like to share or any other weird jobs that i haven't mentioned um buckingham palace i worked selling uh really weird china in the gift shop so it wasn't like i had a top secret access to the queen but um we did see the corgis being walked in the garden which was very exciting for all of us and um i used to have dinner like lunch in the palace and there was a a group of gay footmen um and they had a a gay swimming club called the pink dolphins and they let me join their swimming club it's a huge lgbt uh population in the kind of footmen in buckingham palace um and uh, what else? The burlesque, yeah. I it was a kind of combination of um, my love for comedy and my love for dance and performance that led me to do that. I I, I saw it was quite it was sort of in about two thousand seven and two thousand eight. I was doing this, um, and I did some quite subversive, funny. I like to think feminist burlesque routines, but I wonder if I would do it now, I think I might see it differently now. I, you know, I might kind of think actually, even though I was performing mostly in queer clubs or clubs, you know, there are always a lot of women in the audience. Um, I do, I do feel slightly differently about burlesque now than I did then. Um, and there was one particular show that I did that really made me feel differently about it. I had this burlesque, it was called my bingo burlesque routine. I was really, really proud of it. Um, it was a balloon dance. So I wore a pants and a bra, um, so underpants, sorry, not pants, that's trousers and a rack, isn't it? Um, and had <laughs> balloons, covered in balloons. So I like blew up all these balloons and on each balloon there would be a number. And I gave everybody in the audience a bingo card and a dabber. And I had a dabber, but I had a pin in it. So I would do this routine. So I would call out the numbers and I would do some kind of action that went with it. So like legs 11. Um, or like 69 or whatever it would be and at the end I'd rig it so somebody won but once I was hired to do this at a birthday party at a conservative club and I oh god it was such a terrible experience um, I went as soon as I entered they asked me if I was a stripper and I was like it's not really not really stripping it's more kind of comedy performance art but you know didn't want to didn't want to bring down the tone of the party um and uh, but yeah it became it was a turn out was a surprise so nobody was expecting me and they had no kind of frame of reference for what I was going to be doing so I kind of walked on and everyone was just staring at me when I was wondering what I was doing there um and then the microphone didn't work and the music started at the wrong time and I kind of had to jump off the stage and try and interact with the audience when the music was off and everybody everybody just wanted to play bingo they did not care about me and my weird stripping act they just wanted to play the bingo so I ended up like getting back on the stage pushing myself back on the stage and bursting some of my balloons as I went 
and then just standing at the front with on by the microphone doing this really depressed kind of bingo caller thing like you know number two feeling blue number just so depressing and um then I had this one where I used to kind of reach through my legs and pop a balloon on my bum. It'd be like number one on the bum. And so I kind of turned around with my back to the audience and reached through my legs to pop this balloon. But it, but it, I'd already accidentally popped it. So I was kind of just rummaging between my legs in this like horrific, depressing, awful way. And then at the end, I had to take off my bra and the last two pasties were on my nipples. And people covered their eyes. And um, when I finished, I was like, number two, Alaska Blue. That was the end. There was some booing. There was some actual booing. And um, kind of ran off the stage, extremely depressed. And the DJ said, come on, lads. She got her tits out. Give her a round of applause. And I've never felt worse. I have never felt worse. Um, So, yeah, that's when I realized that the male gaze was really, really in force. Um, But... It, the positive thing about that is that it did make me feel that if I could, you know, fail miserably, die on stage while not wearing any clothes, I could probably deal with dying on stage while fully clothed. And it helped me get into comedy because I was like, nothing is, gonna, nothing is ever going to be as bad as that. So even if you're a stand up comic and you do a really bad set, at least you're wearing jeans, you know, so always a positive. <laughs> <laughs> at least they can't say, well, at least she got her tits out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you have some experience writing comedy for television or screenplays? Um, I currently, I'm currently developing a few things for television. It's something I've always wanted to do. Um, and it's, it's the way I started writing apart from children's books. I'd never, whenever I tried to write fiction, I felt quite pretentious writing dialogue. Uh, sorry. When I was writing description, I felt extremely pretentious. Like I was trying too hard. And I just couldn't really bear it. But then I went on a screenwriting course and I realized I really love writing dialogue. Um, And that's how I got into writing. And so um, after trying to write a screenplay, I tried to write this novel actually as a screenplay. And then a friend friend of mine and I teamed up and started writing sitcom scripts. And we won win-win. We came like shortlisted in a couple of competitions, um, which was really encouraging. Um, But nothing ever got made. But now... Because of because there's so much dialogue in my book, um, when that was sent around to production companies, I started having meetings with them about screenwriting because I think they can see that I can write dialogue, which is so exciting because it's something I've always wanted to do. So yeah. And having, uh, I, I just recently got my PhD in English creative writing, uh, so I worked with a lot of writers on their manuscripts and uh a lot of them are very afraid of writing dialogue which i find strange because i'm i'm the same way like i kind of it's it's easier when you can like hear your characters talking to you because then you don't feel like you're you're having to make it up you're just sort of like this is sort of naturally what they would say that's exactly that's how i feel about it yeah Um, definitely so i i totally relate but i think it's either one it's one of those things where you're like you either hear the characters or you don't and if you don't hear them like dialogue can be very Hard to write. Yes, exactly. I think I'm. I think I'm the other way. So I find that when I'm in one, when I'm using a voice that's not my voice, I feel much more comfortable. And if it's my voice, then I, it feels quite exposed. Mm-hmm. So that's the challenge. My second novel I'm writing at the moment is in the third person. I find that more difficult because it feels like it's really me writing the book rather than my character narrating the story. So it, yeah, it feels more exposing in a way. That makes sense. Um, can you tell us anything about? the book you're writing now or yeah yeah um it's about it's kind of about women 
mostly women in their early 30s realizing they're running out of time to do all the things that they wanted to achieve. And well, that's, it's about that's me right now, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's about women sort of trying to decide whether they want to have children and how they are going to have children because there's this, there's a straight couple in it and they're trying to decide whether they want to have children. And there's a lesbian couple who are thinking about fertility treatment and which of them should carry the child and um, there's a gay couple who are kind of considering whether they might want to do it. So and it's and so yeah, it's about whether the way your identity changes when you have children or if you have children. Um, and it's also about, um, I, my biological father is a sperm donor and one of the characters in my novel finds out that she, her father's a sperm donor as well. So I kind of wanted to look at that as well. The, how, and also if I have children as a lesbian, I will use a sperm donor. So I kind of want to look at that as well. Those different um, aspects of having kids and fertility and identity. So, that sounds very interesting, but also, that's hitting very close to home for me right now. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. Um, but yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, so <laughs> kind of swerving a little bit. Uh, yeah. So some, uh, this is the writing suggestion corner. All right. Oh, yeah. So uh, there, there are two things that you do in this novel that I feel like writers have difficulty doing. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, writing comedy. Um, is very hard. Like, okay, so we've already talked about dialogue. Some writers have difficulty with that. Besides that, writing comedy, it seems like it would be hard. Um, It seems like when you're trying to be funny, it's really hard to be funny. I don't know. Do you have any suggestions for writers on how to write comedy? That is tricky. It's I think comedy is quite. It's a bit like music. It's a sort of rhythm, isn't it? It's a it's a rhythm of a sentence and the rhythm of a joke. One thing is find a word that sounds funny and put it at the end of a sentence. That's a really, that's a really simple thing. It's all about sticking um, the landing, right? Yeah. Sorry. It's all about sticking the landing at the end. Exactly. It's all about sticking the landing. You don't want to put your funny word in the middle and then kind of tail off at the end. That's like a really technical weird thing. Um, I, my advice is to read a lot of comedy scripts not necessarily funny books but um i think i learned to write comedy by reading like 30 rock scripts so funny so many jokes in those scripts um watching comedy on television and i really recommend taking improv classes because that really teaches you it doesn't just teach you comedy it's fine it teaches you to find the funny thing so you're not trying to be funny but what you're doing is you're identifying when something funny happens and then you lean into that and I think that's the best way to do it rather than to try and force it to to find something unusual and funny and then kind of exploit that um, and also improv teaches you about structure when to end a scene that all that stuff and you're you're doing it on the spur of the moment and it's terrifying but also extremely useful writers yeah okay so the second thing and you knew that this had to come up right there's a lot of sex in this book oh yeah um one of the things that i think is the most difficult to write is sex Um, yes because it's sort of like once you get down to it it starts feeling really um technical (laughs) and less emotional i don't know (laughs) so what is your suggestion for writing good sex scenes or and not well let's not say good because it's not that all the sex in the book is like good sex right but it's like sex yeah yeah sex is worth writing about um I think part of the thing 
So there's a, there's an award ceremony in this country called the Bad Sex Awards, and I've been to that ceremony. And during and the idea of it is, I don't agree with their premise. So the the premise of the awards is that there shouldn't there sh- no one should write about sex in literary fiction, basically. Um, and I disagree with them. Um, but they um, award a prize for a good book that has been ruined by a terrible sex scene. And when they kind of read they read out the shortlisted sex scenes, and they are very funny. Like the audience is just rolling around kissing themselves um, and, it, and they're not intentionally funny but what they do I decided when I was there like I was trying to analyze what made them terrible and they use a lot of uh, similes and metaphors and I just do not think that you should use similes and metaphors in a sex scene it just it often goes horribly wrong I remember one that was like he pinned her down like a lepidopterist pinning a butterfly to a board you know it often ends up being quite kind of gruesome and disgusting and giving you a mental image that you do not want when you're thinking about sex so I think be direct be straightforward use the correct words for people's anatomy don't use kind of like his throbbing member um avoid kind of cliches as well try and try and um, yeah, be authentic to the experience and describe without being too flowery um, what is actually going on. And I don't think you go too far wrong if you do that. Yeah. <laughs> it also it also helps when you are. I feel like uh, I mean maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like writing about sex when there's allowed to be like some humor to it or like it's not necessarily going to go well. Like that kind of makes it better because I think like. At the end of the day, like, some sex of the, is funny. Yeah, sex <laughs> is funny, and like, some of the best sex I've had is like ended with laughter. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think to write, and I think writing honestly as well, and writing about the bad stuff as well as the good stuff is important because it's not always going to go smoothly. Like, no. somebody's going to lean on someone's hair, and somebody's going to, you know, all that kind of stuff is truthful. And I think that, as with everything, for me, it comes down to being truthful about what the experience is really like. Yeah. Well, I think that's really good advice for all of our writers listening. So, yeah, um, this is secretly just for me because I need to be a better writer. So, <laughs> um, okay, one more question, sort of like about you. Um, yeah. So, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you came out as an adult. This is a book about coming out as an adult um yeah if if someone in their 20s can be considered an adult i don't know that can go either way um but what do you think because you know like i think we don't see as many books about adults coming out it's usually ya books or books about teenagers what do you think are some major differences about coming out as an adult versus coming out as a teen or even younger for me, and I can only really speak from my experience, I just felt so much more sure and so much more comfortable coming out as an adult. Um, I, I kind of had thoughts, you know, like I actually had come out when I was 14 to some of my friends, but it was during the, you know, this is the 90s. Yeah, the 90s, late 90s. And it was still very taboo at school. People didn't really talk about it, and I felt quite ashamed. Um, and but by the time that I came out as an adult, and hopefully this is true of other people, but it won't be true of everybody. But I was not living with my parents. I had lots of queer friends. I didn't have, and I, you know, there was there wasn't that stigma around it anymore for internally or externally as much because again, I grew up. I, you know, I was living in London, so. I, I was living in a very liberal place. So 
coming out as an adult felt like a pretty much pure joy for me really I didn't I and I that's what I wanted to represent in my book it was such a pleasure to finally figure out who I am who I was um and I kind of just threw myself into it head first um so I think that possibly you can be more certain as an adult but then again that comes with the feeling of uh, regret that you've wasted time <laughs> Um, you know, you've, you've kind of missed out on however many years of, uh, you know, living your authentic life. But I think that all of those experiences, for me, the experiences that came before that were useful and interesting. And I'm, you know, don't regret any of it. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I'm, I'm very excited about this book. I'm excited about this book that you're talking about, even though that sounds scary. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much. Um I can't wait to see what you write, what comes out next. Yes. My weird fertility novel. I have to finish it. I have to sit down and actually write it. That's the the sophomore novel is supposed to be the hardest, I hear. Yes, exactly. This is the thing. I'm fine over this month and then you can write anything. So, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Wasn't that interesting? That was so good. You're such a great interviewer, Emily. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I'm so glad y'all liked it. Um, yeah, so that book is out now if y'all want to check it out. Um, and if you do read it and have thoughts, yes. write in. Let us know what you thought. Loved it. Love- <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what have you done? This is how I fake my death. <laughs> I'm like bright red now, by the way. <laughs> anyway, would love to read your thoughts. <laughs> oh my word, I'm crying. Because the sex was so sad. <laughs> I would love to read your thoughts on the podcast. Yes. Um, speaking of thoughts and reading, we have some listener feedback. If you want to read it from The Lion King. Yeah. Cool. I can read this first one. Cool. Okay. This is from Brianna from Hattiesburg. I wanted guest of the mm-hmm. blog on a couple of occasions. Guest of the blog. Um, yeah. I wanted to like it more than I did. I love the actors and the characters, but it all felt and sounded very stilted and dare I say it, cheesy. Even James Earl Jones lacked the emotion and nuance he put into Mufasa originally. I was literally watching a copy of the original, but less impressive. They had the chance to really do something new with it. I'm thinking of added scenes and songs from Beauty and the Beast, but they practically carbon copied it. Even the music sounded less impressive. The bass and the volume sounded subdued, and this is listening in an IMAX theater versus from a VHS tape (laughs) on a TV in my childhood. (laughs) My favorite scene of Simba taking Pride Rock in the rain at the end was so anticlimactic here. Rafiki was disappointing, too. I don't know. It was just so less impressive than I wanted it to be. I had to go watch the original afterward to really feel the catharsis. LOL. I um, can understand why you feel this way, but I respectfully disagree. <laughs> I respectfully agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I respectfully disagree with you too, Mary. That's okay. <laughs> So much respect happening here. I want to read the second one. Okay. Mary from Flowery Branch, Georgia. 
I want to live in a place called Flowery Branch, Georgia. And this is not you. How beautiful. Yeah. This is not me. I am not from Flowery Branch. There are many of us, many of us (laughs) Marys in Georgia. Mary, did you just ride in? (laughs) Basically. Mary is from Onion, Georgia. About Dale, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This was the first movie I ever walked out of and requested a refund for. Whoa! The CGI was beautifully done for the Circle of Life recreation, but was just flat elsewhere. Lots of people argue that the animals weren't expressive because Disney was aiming for realism, but, like, has anyone at Disney ever met a cat? They're incredibly expressive, even the big cats. Having the CGI lions be so wooden just made it boring, and the voice acting wasn't good enough, or at all, to save it, in my opinion. Overall, it was super disappointing for me, but I'm glad that other people were, were able to enjoy it. Also, props to Regal for giving me refund tickets to be used at any other movie. Shrug emoji. <laughs> I just want to say, I love a shrug emoji. Oh, I, that's one of my most used emojis. And also, I will say, I didn't request a refund for my ticket to see The Lion King, but I have requested a refund for other movies that were ruined nice. by different things and like for example a worker from the movie theater coming in in the last 10 minutes of a movie and loudly talking and snapchatting see i think that's okay (laughs) having worked at a movie theater for several years um, i reserve the right to snapchat during the film no 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 (laughs) like um, all the respect in the world to you mary from flowery branch however uh the couple of times we did have people come and ask for refunds to movies just because they didn't like them. Um, I think that's complete bullshit. Like that's kind of like a risk you take when you pay to see a movie. All respect to you, Mary, but <laughs> like, I'm glad that they gave it to you, but like, you know how many times I saw a movie that I hated and I was just like, well, I'm the dumbass who paid for it. So, you know what I mean? Like, that's just a risk you take. Does it matter to you when they walk out and ask? Like, if it's, you know, 30 minutes in and it's like, I hate this, or no. if they sat through the whole like, thing? Like, that's just kind of the risk you take. Did you ask for a refund when you left Suspiria? I fucking should have. <laughs> <laughs> Dakota Johnson personally owes me money. You're like, now. man, I could have done that. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm very surprised they gave you a refund because I feel like that's I didn't just even know like... you could do that. So, this was like... This whole you can't. <laughs> well, you can <laughs> apparently. This whole thing is brand new to That's me. That's bullshit. Because I, Don't do I, it. It didn't occur to me to ask for one, but I also was almost. Listen, movie theater workers get paid minimum wage. Don't bother them with that trifling ass bullshit. Like if Dakota but, Johnson but if was one there, of those employees or, comes in. Yeah, that's different because. That is not Get what you paid for. If, if your movie yeah. experience gets That's ruined different. by outside forces, then I would say you could request a refund. Yeah. I just, I just like, and Absolutely. I was very polite when I asked for a refund. I just have never felt more powerful. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this you are is powerful. what. You were, you were that white lady who asked to speak to a manager. Yeah. This is peak white yeah. woman behavior. That's <laughs> what I just thought. It's like when your car got towed for no fucking reason. Woo! <laughs> She was like, I want a refund for New Orleans, please. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Also, update on the car situation. I ended up just having to pay for it because they were like, "Uh, yeah, well, you broke the law. It doesn't matter if you knew about it or not. That's such bullshit. bullshit. 
Everyone, we're boycotting the city of New Orleans. I'm not going to do that because that's the closest city to me and so I have to go there. Oh, no, I don't blame you because that's part of, that is part of the joy of living in Hattiesburg. It's like the only joy <laughs> of access in to New Orleans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I went a lot when I lived there. We're not really boycotting it, but we are mad, and I would like to publicly shame whoever gave Mary that. Ticket. I would like to publicly <laughs> shame the parking authority of New Orleans. <laughs> so, no respect yeah. to y'all. Respect to Mary and Flowery Branch. No respect. Yeah, we to the all want refunds for that. In New yeah. Orleans. But you know what? Go on with your bad self getting you that refund. I hope you went and saw a good movie with it. Don't not Suspiria. Yep. Yeah, not Suspiria. Something yeah. else. Also, not scary stories to tell in the dark. Oh, shit. You know what? I'm surprised by how many people have liked that movie. Yeah. And I'm just like, why though? It wasn't good. That was fine. It was like... It wasn't that It was good. like a kitty movie, but not a kitty movie. It didn't know who it was for. Yeah. It was like corny as hell, but also like scary images... But you know, if a scary movie comes out, Emily and I are seeing it. It didn't know who it was for. That's a great way to describe something. It's very accurate. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you could use that on a dating app. Almost. Like in your bio. I just don't know who this is for. (laughs) I don't know who I'm for. (laughs) Does confusion excite you? I don't know who I'm for, but if that excites you... Um, no refunds if it ends up that I'm not for you. Okay, what's next on the blog? (laughs) Happening on the blog. First of all, we always have our recaps. Not always. They will end one day. There are some recaps that are always happening. There will always be a recap <laughs> at whatever time of the year. Yeah, right now there are a lot. Riverdale will say, be coming. I'm on the edge of my seat with Are You the One? You gotta wait two weeks <sighs> <laughs> to find out if Justin and Max are a match. I don't think they are. Well, we'll find out. But anyway, so Are You the One recaps are happening. Bachelor in Paradise recaps are happening. Uh, what else we got? I wrote a post about Euphoria and very good about teenage girls and how uh, Euphoria is about how there can be many different types of teenage girls. You mean there's not just two types of girls? <laughs> not just two. But I thought she wears short skirts and I wear t-shirts. She's cheer captain and I'm on the bleachers. Well, that's what you get for listening to Taylor Swift. Also, that one song. She's a slut, and I'm not, and that's why you should want me. That's song that's almost the same thing. She's the prime queen. I'm in the marching band. Remember that song? <laughs> that's it. Those are the two types of girls you can be. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Just so you know. It's either prom queen or band geek. There's no in-between. Just kidding. There is. There are many, and that's why I wrote about it in my blog post. I mean, I was one of those. Prom queen? It was the band geek. I was neither of those. They forgot Art Kid. Taylor Swift forgot Art Kid. You were Bob Ross at a Halloween party. Yeah. I was theater kid. Yeah. I, not in high school, but I was homecoming queen in college. Wow. (laughs) I didn't know that was a Isn't that a weird fact? That is a weird fact. (laughs) I respect it. 
I'm just as surprised about it still as you guys are right now. Did you know that that was a thing when they asked you to be homecoming queen? Yeah, I didn't know college had homecoming They queen. asked me to, they nominated me to be their, like, representative, like, a group. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And, yeah, and then I won. And I was like, oh, what? Like, how big was your school? <laughs> Did you get to ride around um, on a float? I was supposed to, there was a parade and we were going to ride in like a convertible, but it rained. So we didn't have the parade. Whoa. Um, shit. How many people were at the school? Like less than 3000. Okay. Cause I was like how I had, my school had 50,000 people at it. Yeah. I'm no, like, how is there a homecoming? It wasn't queen? like Southern football school homecoming, Yeah, but it was still like, you know, a thing, I guess. All right. What else we got on the vlog? Thank you for letting me talk about that. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> Congratulations, Susan. Belatedly. Susan has a post. Yeah. Um, speaking of hot models like myself, <laughs> um, I really want to recap America's Next Top Model again, but it keeps not ever coming on, so I don't know when that's going to happen. So I just went ahead and cast the next season for it. To help them. Um, Hoping that it would be an all-star season. So, If you see it, just share it and tag Tyra Ooh. Banks. She is at Tyra Banks on Twitter. And she would love to hear from me over and over. So, uh, Also speaking of top models, the Wheel of Time casting has just been announced. <laughs> they are all beautiful people in the <laughs> cast. Um, but because I am slowly making my way through the Wheel of Time series... Uh, Todd and I have posted our reactions to the Wheel of Time casting decisions. Because if you will remember, I did a blog post of my dream cast. Did anyone from the dream cast make the real cast? No, nobody from the dream cast made the real cast. I mean, perhaps I was a little overambitious because I picked people who had been in movies. (laughs) (laughs) But I am happy with the cast and... Um, I'm excited to see what they do. And I'm most notably happy because it's not all um, just, like, white people, which I feel like happens a lot in fantasy series. Mm-hmm. Like, they have a pretty diverse cast, which I'm excited nice. about. And Rosamund Pike is going to be in yes, it. Yes, my queen. So I'm very excited. I love her. Yeah. Sometime in the near future, though, Emily and I are going to write a blog post about Ghosted. Oh my god, y'all. Can we talk about this for a second? Please do. Because it's coming. Um, So there's a new television show on MTV. Do you know who the host is? Oh, I saw this. It's Rachel Lindsay. Rachel Lindsay is hosting a show on MTV called Ghosted. It's hunting down people who ghosted people. And I'm so It seems like, like, what if catfish, but they disappeared? I'm so excited. Are you they going to come know. for me? Probably. Can I, can I be part of this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think we're going to write a blog post, like, after it's had a couple of episodes. Just to, like, reflect on, like, how's it going. Like, so not as, we're not going to recap it. We're just going to kind of, like, review it after a few episodes are out. Yeah. How's that I'm sound? always down to write a blog about how cool I think Rachel Lindsay is. Yeah. Love her. Cannot Which, like. I think she's getting married this weekend. Yeah. So, or... It's one of these last two weekends in August. She made it to the wedding, which is a lot further than lots of bachelor people get. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
That's two Bachelor Nation weddings in the month of August, if anyone's counting. It's getting a little crazy. I know. And uh, didn't uh, Crystal and Chris just get married, too? They did. They got married, like, a few months ago, I guess. But, yeah. But we're going to see it next week on Bachelor in Paradise, which means you all will read about it next week when we talk about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And probably make fun of it Mm -hmm. a little. Yeah. Although I like Crystal, so. Chris, on the other hand, not so much. Yeah. Next up on the podcast... No, Chris sucks. Um, Sorry to move away from VIP. What? Okay, what's next on the pod? Oh yeah, no, let's let's wrap this up. Next up on the podcast, we've got back to back episodes hosted by me, Mary. Yay! <laughs> um, first of all, we will have a book episode. We will be talking about the Memory Police, a novel that was recently released in the U.S. by Yoko Agawa. You may be thinking, recently released in the U.S., do you mean it just came out? No, it came out in 1994. (laughs) I didn't know that when I started reading. And it was a shock. So, if you want to see how a novel released in 1994 in Japan has eerily produced the or eerily predicted the events of today, read the Memory Police <laughs> along with us. Um, the premise is there is a woman living on an island who is a novelist, and things slowly start disappearing from the island. And there is a group of people named the Memory Police who enforce the disappearance of these things. And the novel follows her as more and more things disappear over the course of the novel. It's really weird, and it was really interesting, and I'm excited to hear what you guys think about it. Yeah, I'm. that makes a lot of sense, because I remember when I originally saw it online and on Goodreads, it had, like, all these reviews. Yeah. So I sent it to the group, and I was like, has anyone ever read this? And then I was like, wait, it's not out yet? Like, I can pre-order it? I'm confused. Yeah. So it just hasn't been translated. Now I understand. You can order it in Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we will have a other episode with special guests Lisa Kroger and Melanie Anderson. They are the authors of the new book, Monster She Wrote, about women in horror. And they're the co-hosts. Of the podcast, No Fear. That's no K-N-O-W, Fear. We will be talking to them about the Shirley Jackson classic, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And we will also be talking to them about their new book. We are excited to have them. And I am honestly pumped to get in the mood for Halloween. Hooray, me too. Yep. Stoked. Um, uh, this is my part. If you <laughs> if you have any thoughts or feelings about anything we talked about in this episode or any episode ever, um, or on the blog, we'll take any kind of feedback well, we, we can get. Uh, we love <laughs> blog feedback. You can email us at thesquad at booksweggles.com. You can visit our blog at booksweggles.com slash blog. Uh, also, it would be great if you followed us on social media. We are at Book Squad Goals on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would love it so much if you would leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that is where – that's like the mother, like the starter. If like every podcast is like a tiny loaf of rye bread, um, the starter is <laughs> Apple Podcasts. I don't know if that actually makes sense as a metaphor, but I would really just like it if you would leave us a rating and review. But 
Only five stars. Okay. I don't think that it's ever been compared to a starter before, so. Just leave us a review for my um, innovation and creativity. Uh, Artiste. Also, subscribe. If you're not subscribed and you're listening to this, you know, maybe you just, maybe it's your first time. If you've been listening to this for a while and you haven't subscribed, I think you are missing out on an opportunity for convenience and pleasure, both. Uh, but thank you as always for listening and we love you guys and I love you guys. No one loves me back. That's it. Aw, I'm sorry. I love you too. Thanks. God. Um, I'm going to do like Hannah did on BIP this week and you can tell me that you're starting to fall for me and I'll just say I'm all in. But after (laughs) like... A long pause. Yeah, after like 30 full seconds of nothing. Well, I still haven't watched, so thanks for spoiling that for me. Oh, like you didn't know he was going to say I love you soon. I'm surprised he hasn't said it already. He probably yeah, has I feel like they never camera. say I love you. They're like, I'm falling. Yeah, I'm beginning to have feelings of love yeah. for you. Well, I'm falling in love with you, Kelly, and I hope you feel the same way. Um, I'm all in. (laughs) (laughs) The best I could have hoped for, really. Awesome. Bye. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.